Rogues of the Black Fury, Episode 26. Rogues of the Black Fury, a novel, written and produced by Travis Hearman. This novel contains violence, adult language, and mature situations. Listener discretion is advised. For more information, please visit travishearman.com slash rogues. Special guest performer, Danielle McCarville. For more information about Danielle, check out the Rogues of the Black Fury podcast website. Chapter 42 There were so many ways to feel wretched. Bella allowed herself to be led back to the Sereglio. Feeling the agony and misery for what happened to herself was one thing. Seeing the suffering and imminent death of someone else, someone sent to save her, was quite another. She wept as she trudged behind the man who dragged her back to the Sereglio. Two of them carried Sasha between them. Back in the Sereglio, the girls were herded into the dark, musty cells in the back of the large room. The Ibsothans threw Sasha into a cell alone while they crammed the other girls six at a time into cells barely large enough for one. Bella wept quietly, standing shoulder to shoulder with five other slave girls. The men carried Sira's body away, and the Sereglio hung as silent as a tomb. The girls whispered to one another in the darkness in all manner of languages and accents. The only light in Bella's cell came through the small grate in the heavy wooden door. She was happy that Sirsir had chanced to be thrown in with her. Sirsir edged around two other girls and came to Bella, hugging her and telling her that everything would be all right, even though she knew that it would not. After Bella's sobs diminished, Sirsir said, Who is that woman? I don't know, but I think she came here to save me. Why? Do you have someone who cares about you? Your family didn't sell you here? Bella shook her head. My father is Janice Wollstone, the Grand General. I am Bella Wollstone. One of the other girls snapped, Shut up! Your name is Cole. You'll get us all in trouble. They might be listening. You shut up! Bella snapped back. I'll not deny my own name. That woman killed Sarah, Seersir said. What kind of woman can kill like that? I don't know. I've never heard of a woman so fierce except in stories of ancient times. I overheard Sira speaking this morning to one of the men. Your Sunethi will be tonight. Now that Sira is dead, they will have to wait until they find someone else. You are lucky. The other girls edged away from her, looked away from her. Some of them shuddered and rubbed their arms. What is Sunethi? Bella asked. Circe's smooth brow furrowed for a moment as if thoughts of how to explain rustled with memories. They... they cut you. Here, 
Circe's fingers touched Bella's groin through the shift. Bella gasped and flinched away. They say that a, a certain piece of a woman's parts turns her into a wanton harlot, makes her unclean. So they, they cut that piece away. But only a woman can do it. Sarah did it to all of us. It is the only way we can be consecrated to the gods, the only way we can serve men and not defile them. Bella's hands fell to cover her groin, and her imagination ran wild. They just cut it away? With a very sharp knife. A sick dread congealed in her belly like a black ball of tar, and her body quivered at the imagination of agony. It hurts a lot, Seersir said, but it heals, in time. Except for sometimes the girl gets a fever and dies. But you mustn't worry much. Sira is dead now. They will have to find someone else. The girl standing nearest the window said, Look, they're coming to get her. Oh, I can't look, Bella groaned. Another life on her conscience, like the man in black on the streets of Barmia, killed trying to save her. She did not mind dying anymore. She would like to see her mother again, after all. But more people should not be dying to save her. They're taking her away, the other girl said. Seersir stroked Bella's long hair. Oh, the other girl said. They're coming this way. The girls gasped and murmured, edging away from the door. The door flew open. Adon stood in the doorway, searching the faces of the cowering girls. Spotting Bella, he reached in, snatched her chain, and dragged her out. She noticed that he had a spot of blood on his shoulder. There was a fresh, ragged puncture torn in his robes under his arm. Where are you taking me? Silence! Something in Adon's voice told that another utterance would likely leave her crippled and broken. He dragged her out of the cavernous temple into the hot, glaring afternoon sunlight down the steps. She glanced a man's head mounted on a golden spear in a shrine beside the steps, and surrounded on three sides by polished silver mirrors that directed the sun's rays at the head. It was already quite shriveled and leathery from the heat, but she could still recognize the face of Shalat Bin. Waiting for her at the bottom of the stairs were a wagon and a richly appointed carriage. The wagon was completely enclosed and looked like a thick wooden block, with one heavy door in the rear and no windows. The draft box grunted and fretted in their harnesses as they stood in the day's growing heat. Six Ibsatha priests rode into view and their armor plates glinted in the hot sun as they took positions around the wagon and the carriage. Bella caught a glimpse of the master's face hidden behind gauzy curtains within the carriage before Adon flung her into the hot, stifling darkness of the wagon. She landed beside Sasha's bloodied, inert form and an unconscious farthy man lying bound and gagged in the front of the wagon. Adon slammed the door. Chapter 43 Conan sculled the boat down the canal. 
the last vestiges of sunset lingered on the water and cast shadows deeper than the dead of night doubtless the three of them and their small craft were leaving a stench trail in their wake but it could not be helped to alleviate their olfactory discomfort however they directed their boat out of the narrow canals toward the fringes of the slum and into the wider river where they beached on a small sandbar in midstream the cleaner water allowed them to rinse some of the scum and sewage out of their clothes lamps blazed to life up and down the river banks in the distance soldiers stood guard at bridges and patrolled the riverside thoroughfares helian's balls tonin breathed how did we ever get out of that canal without being seen there are patrols everywhere javin sat down on the sand and shrugged as he wrung out his shirt the question is how do we get past them all now and reach the temple this boat stands out like a log even at night they will see us and we can't well walk the streets in the distance perhaps a thousand paces down river he could see the great silver moon disk atop the high temple glistening against the stars an expression of devious glee slid across tonan's face a log you say i have an idea might work javin said as he looked at the narrow canal boat they had turned the boat upside down in the water and it floated there like a turtle shell or a fallen log or an empty overturned boat tonin's head emerged from the water there's air inside the boat we can breathe that they used some of the rope they purchased to tie a few large river stones to the gunwales of the craft to make it ride low in the water to appear damaged and discarded a distant witness might see only a piece of flotsam drifting down the river. Maggot muttered, I can't believe I'm going along with you two scholars. No one is forcing you. Stay here for all I care, Javin said as he put on his shirt again, much cleaner now, and stepped into the water. His hair no longer smelled like shit. He took his place at the overturned bow of the boat. Tonin said to Maggot, Are you coming? Maggot frowned and stepped into the water at the stern of the boat. Together, the three of them slid the boat free of the sandbar and pushed it out into the current. Javin was an inexperienced swimmer, so when the sandy bottom fell away under his feet, his grip clenched even harder at the gunwale. They floated alongside the boat for a while, not speaking or splashing, and did their best to keep the boat moving in the correct direction in the broad, sluggish current. When the guard patrols drew near, they ducked under the water and brought themselves up into the interior of the boat. There was just enough air space for them to raise their heads out of the water, but now they were blind and could only trust the whims of the river currents to keep their camouflage from bumping into the stony bank at the feet of a guard patrol. Keep it in the deep water, where the current is swiftest. Tonin's voice echoed strangely with the water lapping inside the confines of the boat's belly. Holding on to the insides, they floated under the boat with the river current, using their legs and arms to point the boat downstream. Their breath quickly grew stale inside the air pocket, but they judged that they would need at least fifteen minutes floating with river current to reach the vicinity of the high temple. It was pitch black inside the boat, but after a while Javin could see dim gray light filtering from the stars through the water surrounding their makeshift tortoise shell. After a time the light grew brighter, yellowish, 
as they neared the lanterns of patrolling soldiers. Voices filtered through the wood. Javin found himself holding his breath, even as he paddled harder with his feet to hurry the boat along. He imagined he could feel suspicious eyes on him, boring through the wood. His heart hammered so loudly, he thought it must be echoing inside the small chamber. More voices filtered through the wood, and he did not like their tone. Tonin's whisper was barely audible. They've seen the boat. Just relax and let it float. Tonin closed his eyes, and his lips moved in silent prayer. Slowly, excruciatingly, the moments passed, piling dread upon Javin's heart like an unhurried landslide. The silence deafened. His heart pounded. The lights in the water dimmed, and the voices began to recede behind them. All of them breathed sighs of relief. Tonin muttered, I guess none of them wanted to get wet. There is one more bridge, and after that, perhaps two hundred paces to the high temple. But the air under the boat was becoming too stale to breathe. For a moment, Javin felt the interior of the boat closing in around his head, threatening to force him out. His breath quickened. Steady, Tonin whispered. We'll survive this. Remember two minutes of heaven. Two minutes of heaven. Two minutes of pure, agonizing, gasping, sucking, strangulating hell, more like. This would be nothing compared to that. The light outside the boat grew brighter again, crossed by the shadow of a bridge as they passed under it. Javin's mind whirled with repetition. Just a little bit farther. Mother Inanan protect us. Just a little bit farther. Make them ignore us. Make them let us pass by. Just a little bit farther. He tried to concentrate on controlling his breathing. But his mind was growing dim. There was nothing within their turtle shell worth breathing any more. He clutched the gunnels with both hands and let his feet dangle limp under him, feeling the river plants brush his ankles. Finally, these lights began to recede as well, but Javin's lungs were like to burst. Tonin gasped. We have to hold it as long as we can. All three of them were gasping for breath. Javin's mind slipped away, slowly, like a stranger walking away down a stark street. His feet dragged against the sandy bottom, and the dark water warmed. He listened as best he could with his diminishing senses, and heard nothing outside. Time for a look, he gasped with as much breath as he could muster. Before Tonin could protest, Javin ducked his head and slid out from under the boat. But he knew that he must not make any noise, so as carefully and slowly as he could manage, he raised his face out of the water and took a deep breath, one of the sweetest breaths he had ever taken. He looked around. The bridge lay about a hundred paces behind them, and the boat had slid into a shallow area near the same bank as the high temple, which lay perhaps a hundred paces farther downstream. There was no riverside street here. Only large, opulent mansions built to the water's edge, with luxurious verandas and balconies overlooking the river. Fortunately, all of them were unoccupied, but some of them held glowing lanterns as if the occupants could return at any moment. Javin tapped the side of the boat twice, and two heads immediately popped up behind him, both gasping for breath. He looked at Tonin and grinned. Tonin grinned back. The boat was still moving with them downstream, sliding past the riverside mansions, but the time had come to let it go. They pushed it into the river, where the current could take it, 
and watched the boat float away for a time as they caught their breath. A small dock stretched onto the water from the base of the towering stone wall of the high temple. Narrow steps led up to a small postern gate, and one more dock closer by, perhaps fifty paces, with stairs that led up to street level. The balconies and verandas, suspended far above their heads, were inaccessible from the waterline. Such wealthy landowners did not wish anyone to reach their back doors from the water. He pointed to the upstream dock and moved toward it, and the other two followed. Even in the shallows, the strong current meant slow going. They were exposed. Any passing pair of eyes would likely spot them. They made their way to the dock and up the steps to the street, dribbling a trail of river water behind them. Rusk and the rest of the Furies would be watching the main gate, Javin was certain. Perhaps there was already a plan under way to get inside the temple. Javin did not know how he would find them, only that he hoped their paths would cross. The streets and mansion gates were well lit, and the estates were constructed shoulder to shoulder with tight-shut gates keeping out the night. The only way to approach the high temple would be in the open street. Three waterlogged men sloshing down the street would draw attention, but the only other way was the river. Sensing Javin's indecision, Tonin whispered, What now? My turn for an idea, Javin replied. They waited in the shadows of a mansion wall for perhaps half an hour before two city guards marched down the street toward their hiding place. They wore gleaming breastplates over robes of white and brown, scimitars and pistols on their hips, spired helmets with hinged cheek plates, and male fringed necks catching the lamplight. When the guards drew even with their position, the three fledgling furies slunk out of the shadows behind them. On board Bella's star, they had learned how to attack a man from behind clamp a hand over his mouth and silently cut his throat. Rusk had made them practice it dozens of times until they could do it without thinking. Javin grabbed one man, toning the other, with Maggot standing by for contingency. Javin executed the move as he'd been taught, but faster than he could follow what happened, he found himself on his back next to Tonin with a sword flashing down toward his heart. The sword point stopped at his breastbone. Codsucker Wallstone? the guard said. Shard's craggy grin was barely visible behind the broad cheek plates, but his eyes and nose were unmistakable. Horace's voice came from the other guard. Codsucker Tonin. And Codsucker Maggot as well, Shard said, still grinning, but not removing the point of his sword from Javin's chest. It seems we have taken some prisoners, Horace. Indeed. Drop your weapons, codsuckers. We need to make it look good in case anyone is watching. Javin was never so relieved to disarm himself. The three of them dropped their daggers. It was difficult to appear afraid with elation surging through his body. Shard and Horace ushered them at sword point to the nearest guardhouse, a small three-room stucco building with a holding cell and a small store of farthy weapons and ammunition. Six farthy corpses, stripped to their undergarments, lay in the back of the holding cell. 
Rusk sat behind a crude desk, looking as if he belonged there. The lights burned bright behind the closed shutters. Six Furies waited within the guardhouse with Rusk. The guardhouse stood perhaps a hundred paces up the street from the main gate of the high temple, and offered an excellent view. The crenellated walls of the high temple were bright with lanterns, casting pools of yellow-orange about the massive edifice. Javin could never have imagined his relief at seeing a man who had caused him so much pain and travail. He stood before Rusk at attention, barely able to conceal his grin and his pride that they had not only survived, but had also rejoined the rest of the Furies. The three of them stood before Rusk, and Javin gave him a report. He omitted the problems with Maggot. When Javin was finished, Rusk said, "'Well done, all of you.' "'Thank you, sir,' Javin said. He had never felt such a burst of pride. "'Aside from you all smelling like an unwashed farthy ass crack, I'm pleased you didn't end up with your balls hanging from the end of a spear. Tonin, I'm quite happy to have my interpreter once again. I've been lamenting not putting into port in the free cities to hire one.' As for our part, getting away from the inn ahead of that mob was no easy task. The entire city is up in arms now. In any case, we should all thank you three for providing the diversion that kept the troops and mobs off our necks long enough to get away and undercover. The bad part is that Sasha went after you, and never came back. By now she's either dead or being tortured and interrogated, and that makes me fucking angry. After midnight, in the wee hours, we're going in there. He thumbed toward the high temple. In the meantime, I have a stock of things I want you to translate. A whole pile of official-looking documents have come through this guardhouse today. There must be something important. He gestured toward the stack of documents and scrolls resting in a wooden box on the corner of the desk. Tonin said, Of course, sir. Then get to it. Have you three eaten anything today? No, Javin said. Rusk tossed him a lumpy burlap bag filled with fresh naan, a string of dried apples, and some fresh peaches. The three of them dug into the bag with relish. "'You'll need your strength,' Rusk said. Javin was gratified to see a wooden barrel in the corner filled with fresh water. After sitting in the sewer for so long, he had grown incredibly thirsty, but could not bring himself to drink even the cleaner river water. With food and water in his belly, he started to feel like a new man." Tonin sifted through the stack of missives and letters, munching on a peach. Here's an order from the Central Guard Station to keep a log of anything and anyone who comes and goes from the High Temple, dated today. And here's a written report stating that two wagons arrived early in the day, before noon, both carrying carpets or tapestries. Are they redecorating? Rusk said. Later in the day, a slave wagon and a carriage left the gates and headed north, toward something called... Hal Hamut. It's almost as if this destination is a presumption, or a guess. There is mention of a mountain, but I cannot read more of the script. This man was barely literate. Rusk stroked his beard. What is Hal Hamut? Well, literally, it means Eagle's Talon. Could it be a place? Perhaps. And where do eagles live? In the mountains and high places. Indeed. Rusk said, stroking his beard. Go on. Here's an official announcement. Samish Amphithad the twelfth, son of Zameth Omphithad the seventeenth, the most holy priest king of Alcott, was abducted by persons unknown this morning from Mumashath's shrine. 
That's a holy place, boss. One of the kidnappers might have been wounded, and he screamed curses and blasphemies in Kuskish at Zamish's bodyguards. He also dropped a pistol of Kuskin make. City guards are ordered to arrest all foreigners and bring them immediately to the central guard station for interrogation. He picked up another paper and read it. This one says thirteen foreigners have been captured within the city thus far. Four are still under interrogation. Five have been crucified as spies, and four still await questioning. The city is under strict curfew. No one is allowed on the streets tonight. Are any of the prisoners women? It doesn't specify. Neither does it say their allegiance. I found this too, Rusk said, pulling out a large roll of parchment from a shelf and unrolling it on the desk. Looks like an administrative map of this guardhouse's assigned district. Am I right? Tonin surveyed the map. Yes, sir. The blocks and streets and estates are all clearly drawn and numbered, with an annotated list matching the numbers. This is a list of property ownerships. On this street leading from this temple to the north? Rusk traced the street with his finger through the city districts. Where does this go? It leads out of the city toward the mountains. Rusk looked at the map for a long moment. Perhaps we'll find more information inside the high temple. Codsuckers, fortunately for you, we brought the rest of your gear. Change your clothes and see to your weapons. Tonin, you trade places with Horus and act as a guard. You're going to get us through those temple gates. Thank you for listening to Rogues of the Black Fury by Travis Hearman. If you enjoy the story, don't be shy. Let me know. I would love to hear from you. And don't forget to go to this podcast's homepage and click the Donate button. Give whatever you like, but is $4.99 really too much to ask for this many hours of entertainment? Rogues of the Black Fury is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. I encourage you to copy it and give it away to all your roguish friends. Just don't change it or sell it, or the Black Furies will soon be coming after you.